The Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. A time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Well, good day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast. Today, we have kind of a unique take on things. For the longest time, we've been doing episodes where we talk about different themes and we kind of put our money where our mouth is, where we talk about how to build worlds. And sometimes we talk about really specific things like how do rivers work or, you know, how do how do specifically orcs work, heck, in one of our Patreon-only episodes. And so, once in a while, we kind of like to mix it up. We like to try different things and we like to talk about the literal nuts and bolts of how these worlds come together. So to that end, we had uh, an episode idea from uh, our Worldcraft Club friend and editor, Marcus, and he wanted to do a panel talking specifically about the elements that we use to actually piece these worlds together. Because believe it or not, all of us build worlds before we started making this podcast. We all fell in love with world building in our own way. And so we thought it'd be cool to take a little bit of time to talk about some of the worlds we're making and a little bit about how some of the principles that we're applying and kind of learning about through the course of uh, the Worldcraft Club project, kind of how those play into that. So for this one, I'm going to play host. I'm going to be a bit of, I'm going to be asking these guys questions and going through a little bit of how kind of drawing out some of the themes in that. So with me today, I have Seth. How are you doing, Seth? I'm doing well. And of course, Marcus. How are you doing, Marcus? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right this morning. So look, let's get right into the meat of this. First question, I'm going to pitch to you, Seth. What is the three-minute description of your world? So the world I created prior to this Worldcraft Club podcast, it's called Novaterra. This is a world that I'm still working on. Hmm. Novaterra is a, it's a virtual reality game, and it goes a little bit beyond that. But I would say a virtual reality game is, is a good way to identify it your your, so, your genre is somewhat unique right um you yeah, are you are so the entire genre is about virtual reality games well okay so it's a little bit more complicated than that but but since we're doing the three minute version i think that's a safe way to say it i write in a genre so i write books i write in a genre called gamelet and gamelet is really any world where there are game-like elements hmm Normally, that means you know people see virtual screens that pop up and tell them their stats have improved. That sort of yeah. thing. I'm specifically writing a series called the Titan series about a giant. He's a young man who's eight foot nine inches tall, but he spends all of his time in a full immersion virtual reality game. So he's literally in the quote real world, which is sort of future set. He's laying in a medical pod while his brain is off playing this game mm. with a bunch of other people. So that's the, that's the short version of the world that I've created. What's been really fun and interesting about it is that it's really wide open. 
yeah, because can, it's a game, I can I can really go any direction with it. Yeah, I can imagine there's tons of flexibility in there. I mean, I, I have to imagine though, as a as a virtual reality game, like there there's a million and one subgenres in that. I mean, is it like a crime oh, sure. thriller in it, or is it like no, sci-fi? Okay. Yeah. Is he riding spaceships? What's going on? Great, great point. So, the genre is science fiction. Mm. It's a science fiction subgenre. Again, it's called game lit or lit RPG. Mm. The game itself, the game of Novaterra, is fantasy. Okay. So that's been a really interesting exercise as well, actually, going from a science fiction setting into a fantasy world. Because yeah. it's not strictly fantasy and it's not strictly science fiction. Either. Yeah. Like I imagine that'd give you quite a bit of flexibility in some ways. Like if you want to kind of put a crashed spaceship in there, you kind of could. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, because it's a game, the entire world revolves around game-like interactions. Yeah. So that's been an interesting building experience. And you can also then turn around at any given point and say like, hey, we're adding the continent of Pandera in there. It was covered in mist until just now. And now yes. everybody can see it. And it, it, you can, you can yes. kind of make decisions that are seemingly arbitrary. That's super interesting, Seth. Yes. Yeah. So um, now let's turn this question over to, uh, to Marcus. So what, what, is, what is the basic three-minute elevator pitch for your world? Okay. So the world is called Across the Ether. Hmm. It's a dungeon punk universe. Um, wait, 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 wait. Yeah? Dungeon punk? What's oh, that? yeah. What's that? <laughs> well, in a nutshell, dungeon punk or spellpunk is a okay. genre where all the technology is magic-based. So like steampunk, they would be steam-based, so on and so forth. And that technology is usually referred to as magitech. Okay. So across the ether is a dungeon punk universe. You have most of your typical fantasy races, swords and sorcery, but I also had mm. guns and space travel. So I've been continually adding to it over the years and it's grown from a single planet to roughly two solar systems. Okay, so, okay. So the world revolves around one of the planets called Radia. And mm. all of the technology, weapon, gadgets, cars, ships, is powered by elementals or elemental energy of some sort. Mm. Now, elementals are all over the place. It's a matter of you capturing one and stuffing it in the core of your ship to not only power it, but extract the benefits of whatever element the energy is. Lightning elemental could imbue your cannons with electricity. Fire could protect from extreme cold environments. A mist elemental could cause your ship to appear faint and hazy from long distances so you can sneak mm. past blockades. Now, there are different qualities of elementals. Most of them are animalistic. But then you have greater elementals that are actually sapient and if appeased, may help you out by transforming into a legendary weapon you can wield. And then there are the few sovereign elementals, which are basically treated as gods by the different factions. Now, mm. there is space travel in this world, or rather called ether travel, as space between planets isn't a black vacuum. It's a very colorful, nebulous sea of raw elemental energy with no gravity. I based it on the ancient Greek thought that the air above the earth is only breathable to the gods. Now, I've game mastered two campaigns within this world, and the second started a hundred years after the first. So in, the t in that time, corporations built the Aethergate, a station that 
in Radia's orbit that allows travel to another solar system. And it was later revealed that almost all of the classical fantasy races, elves, dwarves, humans, Eladrin, are not indigenous to Radia. They came from the other solar system. Colonization took its course, and now some of the older fauns, minotaurs, mermaids, and other animal people of Radia are still grumpy that all the centaurs are dead now. <laughs> and with all of this, there are corporate powers, uh, prisms kind of like your paladin, holy organization that worship Chroma, that sovereign elemental, uh, Nagakage, which is kind of their opposite, kind of a shadowy worshiping Horos as the sovereign of nightmares and secrets. You got the elemental monks that wish, you know, equality with people and elementals. Dare, that's just a mercenary firm. And then Raredine, which is basically spearheading all the Magitech advancements. And all the while, most of the world still uses silver and gold coins to do business. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can see kind of an a, kind of an aesthetic there. It's I, I wonder in some ways if if things like uh, like Warcraft almost have kind of like a dungeon punky kind of feel to them because there's a uh, a whole element. You know, you've got dwarves with blunderbusses and uh, gnomish technology and things like that that almost kind of seem to creep into that kind of aesthetic where you have great machines powered by you know these kind of magical things and it has sort of kind of cartoony in some ways it's a little bit larger than life kind of seems to be part of the format it seems almost like a, a bit of a, a bit of a pulpy sort of sort of uh genre take where it's a little bit a little bit light and kind of possible to do a lot of different things as long as it fits that sort of aesthetic of uh you know kind of um high fantasy crossed with tech um yeah, yeah the uh the genre great. gets its name from Dungeons and Dragons. And if yeah, you're familiar yeah. with uh, the Eberron setting, made specifically yeah. for dunge the dungeon punk genre. That's great. Okay, so uh, here's here's the next question up then. Um, and I'll pitch this one to Seth. So where did you start with your world and why did you start there? Like what was it that led you to begin in that specific place? So I started Nova Terra because... I just really like the genre, honestly. I read some other stories in the genre and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I've played video games my whole life. I've really enjoyed these worlds that I'm exploring. I think I could do one myself. But what really kicked it off for me was asking a pretty simple question. What would a computer do with someone way outside the bounds of normal? So my background is actually in programming and application development. And one day I was on Google and somehow stumbled onto Wikipedia and then went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> As and, we so often all do. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I came across a gentleman named Robert Wadlow, who's mm. the tallest man to have ever lived that recorded. He was eight foot 11 inches. And he lived to be, I think, 21 or 22. Uh, but he was very tall. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, oh, what would happen if he played a video game? And then not only what would happen if he played a video game, but what would happen if he played a full immersion virtual reality video game where your starting character was based in some way on your body 
And so that's where this idea really kicked off. So I'm a strong proponent of the whole idea of fairy cake. And so I took that as sort of the initial starting point and I started extrapolating from there what would happen if a computer, if an AI, which is incredibly smart and has specific goals, you know, keeping the game world together, was presented with a player who was just so far outside the bounds of normal that it broke the game innately. A great example of this is that if someone was scaled Mm. from six feet tall up to, let's say, nine feet tall. Yeah. When I did the math, it came out to something like 36 times stronger than the average six foot person. Um, They would also weigh multiple tons. They would be so heavy that based on the size of their feet, when they walked on grass, they would actually sink in like it was mud. Hmm. Right, simply because it would be so heavy and it'd be focused in such a small spot. So obviously, it's a video game. The the AI or the computer that's running the game, the engine that's running the game, can't just let a person do that. Yeah. Right, it would ruin the experience. So how does the computer balance having a person of that size and weight stand on the ground hmm. and not have them? completely destroy anything they touch ever right can you imagine reaching out to shake somebody's hand yeah if you weigh multiple tons you have to stop your hand yeah there's no there's no resistance there there's going no to resistance absolutely so that was, okay what happens when i put this person in the world yeah. and then from there i started building out the character and, and introduced some other things to make it a little bit more interesting so he wasn't mm-hmm. simply a human wrecking ball yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's an interesting question about human limitations. When you alter the scale of something and make something kind of unusual and it doesn't fit, it's kind of interesting to talk about how the world around them kind of compensates. And when you're mm-hmm. in a scenario where, where you're writing a game lit book and you have the flexibility of like a virtual reality system that's trying to compensate and trying to backfill lore and explain things. When you suddenly have somebody who's way outside the norm, the game is going to kind of lose its bottle for a second and have to like realign around this character. And that's exactly what happens, Mm. right? So in the game, players are only allowed to adjust themselves, their character by up to about 20%. Ah. In the game, you can't adjust yourself that much, which means the game is, is by its own rules, stuck giving him a bigger form than anybody else. It can't scale him down to everybody else's size. It's stuck with raw materials. Right. So, so yeah. the game actually has to give him a, a class that is, that is outside the bounds of what's normally allowable. Or I'm sorry, not a class, a, a race. A race. Yeah that's outside of the bounds of what's normally allowable. But this was actually the moment where my world started to take shape. Yeah. Because I said, okay, I have a race now that's outside the bounds of what's normal. I need a backstory. Mm. I need to take this from present, what can be seen, into something a little bit bigger than that, something that has history. And so as soon as I said that, 
my world started to sort of coalesce, right? Because then I said, okay, he can't be these races. And those, every time I'm identifying a race, it's giving me something, it's fleshing out my world, right? Yeah. He can be this race. And because I'm talking about extremes, hmm. it was sort of a natural boundary forming experiment, right? That's phenomenal, yeah. I said, okay, these are the, the normal races. These are the races that are a little bit on the edge, mm-hmm. right? And because he's the main character, the race that he is, there's importance to that race, right? And that allows yeah, me yeah. to start building out the pieces of the world. I'm trying not to spoil anything. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anybody might want to read them. Yeah. Because, I mean, your, your story is high adventure, really, in a lot of ways. It is. And so it kind of um, falls in around that. And there's a sense it's, it's a... Uh, is it right to call it uh, kind of like a like a teen adventure sort of sort yeah, of theme? Yeah, yeah, it's young adult. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of again, kind of definitely high adventure. That. So that that's really interesting. You start off with this uh, with this idea that you kind of want to as as a programmer, you're kind of thinking, I want to test tolerances. Like it's interesting mm-hmm. when you throw a wrench in the works. I get uh, just kind of an object that shouldn't fit an outlier in the data, but then you have a world that needs to be consistent, and so the consistency kind of back fills around it right correct which is interesting because that's often how in some ways main characters are made they're usually outliers within a given system like john wick is an outlier within his given system and the if you like in some ways like the movies are are a ways of kind of trying to figure out how to navigate this this guy who's in the middle of it but that's a weird that's a weird piece of fairy cake there i like that just as an idea so um, let's kick this question over to Marcus then. So Marcus, how did you, like, wh- where, where did you start with your world? And uh, what was it that kind of prompted you to start from there? All right. Um, no kidding. The mental image of a paladin riding a dragon that has jet turbines strapped onto its back. Missile bays under its wings, and the paladin is wielding a gigantic hammer made of rainbows. All right. Uh, so acid was involved, I take it, then? <laughs> <laughs> no, just, um, and this kind of plays into the uh, kind of my goal of the whole world. Mm. I was sick of people telling me what is fantasy and what doesn't belong in fantasy. Mm. The idea was fantasy should have no bounds. So why not? And I started with that image because and this is more of like the process of world building uh, for me that I found out just kind of talking with you guys, uh, working with this project and realizing it's sometimes difficult to me to explain some things unfiltered about the world I'm talking about, because I think focusing on the world itself as kind of like a topographical map yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. setting and where things are laid is actually one of the last steps of my world building process mm. and it very much the very start of it is an idea or an experience mm. so that experience was riding a jet powered dragon with the with a hammer full of rainbows and i wanted to experience that i wanted other people to experience that so from that i made a character and it's the Justicars that are part of Prism. So yes, that scene is in the game, in the world. From there, kind of, okay, what's this faction all about? Okay, what's their opposite faction? What are they like? And then finally, like, okay, what's the world that the 
all these are in, the world that's going to nail them all down yeah. and make them recognizable and relatable and make sense. <laughs> because without that, I have difficulty make, uh, having things make sense to people because I've tried to explain ideas before and people are like, wait, Marcus, what? where's this going? <laughs> and... Uh, I feel I realize now that you know, kind of nailing all of that down is a later process of mine. Yeah, and that's kind of how I how I do things. Yeah, so it sounds a little bit like you kind of had a vision of something that just popped into your head. We're not going to say acid or a large amount of cheese was involved in this, um, <laughs> but there it seems like you got this idea and you thought that is so cool, and I don't want to be limited by the kind of expectations of my genre. Absolutely. And so I'm going to just expand upon it and just start building from that. And this, this kind of highlights to me how varied a fairy cake can be because yours was quite specific, right? Like it's not just that you said, oh, that's the theme I'm going with, but it kind of developed into a theme. And you started with, I'm going to create this this faction, the Jesticars, and they're the people that ride jet dragons and have rainbow war hammers and like that's that. And then you kind of would say, well, you know, paladins are, and this is interesting because you're drawing on fantasy, the kind of typical fantasy tropes there is a paladin. Usually mm -hmm. you know, they're going to, they're going to have sort of an, an antithesis. They're going to have uh, an evil faction that wants them to, uh, you know, wants to submit them to their own rule. And so you kind of go, okay, well, what's that? Um, I, I, I think we really need to know now what is the opposite of a jet dragon and a rainbow warhammer. So who, who are the guys that are fighting against the Jessica? I just have to answer this for my own curiosity now, unless that's a major. All right. So basically all the Justicars belong to the faction called Prism. I mentioned earlier, mm. which worship the sovereign uh, elemental uh, Chroma, who's all about light and colors and yeah. so on and so forth. So their opposite, the other big sovereign Mm. Uh, is Horos, the, the one of nightmares and secrets and are worshipped by this faction, the Nagakage. Yeah. So to more direct answer your question, what is the opposite of a Justicar? It's basically kind of a oriental inspired mm. faction of like shadowy ninjas and samurais that have each clan as a different kind of pillar of mm. Horos' teachings. And also, like what you said of taking kind of inspiration or influences from fantasy, because the paladins are supposed to be like, you know, very yeah. holy and so on and so forth. But their antithesis isn't exactly evil because the Justicars aren't necessarily good. And that was another kind of twist is because, yes, they, the Justicars promote order and peace in their own way. But also they're the wealthiest faction in the world. And a lot of people see them as kind of monopolized tyrants. Whereas some people do see the Nagakage as kind of like these shadowy assassins that get in trouble. Yeah. But once you meet them and get exposed to their side, they see themselves as guarding all those secrets. Because they don't they tend to not take advantage of it. Yeah. It's more of like they're recording history. 
Oh, okay. That's interesting, man. I, I like that, that variance in it. And also the turning of that trope kind of on its head. Cause that's, that's, it's interesting. I'm a big fan of originality is overrated just as an idea in, in, in essence. And this, sure. this of course is really like, sorry, that makes it sound like a backhanded kind of insult. It's not. What I mean is, um, whenever we take an idea and we turn it on its head, we're still using that idea as our basis point. And it's kind of fascinating to take something like this idea of paladins who are universally generally recognized as, as, as a force for good. And then to say, well, it kind of depends on your perspective. You know, you're kind of adding color and depth to that trope. So you're kind of using the tropes while you kind of are subverting them. That's, that's really interesting. And, uh, a neat way to get started with that kind of a vision, especially because you can, um, you can kind of actually anchor a lot off that idea where whenever you have something you are trying to build, you kind of go back to that vision of, okay, I've got a jet powered dragon and a rainbow warhammer. That's, does it feel like this? Does it fit this world? And you can actually get quite a, a really solid foundation built off the back of that. So, um, kind of the next question is, is we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this and look into how, um, like actually how these worlds kind of come to pass. Uh, we'll, we'll come to our third question here, which I'm going to throw to Seth. Where do you spend the most time while developing? Like what eats your time the most? To a certain extent, I, I sort of feel like I'm cheating with this world because it is a video game video games have rules so one of the first things i did is i sat down and i i thought a lot about game theory yeah and game development theory and what makes a good game and then that has really sort of guided how i build out my world it's also allowed me to spend more time simply working on the characters that are in my world and sort of leaving the world to develop naturally around them, which is, which is different than what I normally do. Normally, I spend a whole lot more time on the history of the world. I would still say that probably the lion's share of my time with Novaterra has been on developing history because the main character comes into a game and a lot has happened. Mm. And a lot happened prior to the players arriving. Right. The majority of this world existed before this point in time. Yeah. This is something that's always very interesting for me in world developing is that often there's so much happening in my worlds outside of the main character's point of view. But because this is a game, you can only experience it from one person's point of view. Right. And everything that's happening outside is to some extent not relevant. Th this right? Yeah, I mean, th this keeps coming back to the flexibility of game lit for me. Like, and um, yeah. it's this idea that you can essentially just kind of, uh, you can kind of wing it. You can. Because um, with video games, they're often mechanics that are built into them. And like, I, I have a lot of sympathy for um, like Fallout 4 is like a really good example. Tons of flexibility in that. But you could play that entire game and functionally ignore crafting 
Like you could just be like, I'm not going to do it, even though that is one of the mm -hmm. more rich parts of it. Or you could ignore companions and other players. And it could get to a point where one person's experience of that game, in fact, you can just ignore the main quest because it's a Bethesda game and it's probably not going to be very good anyway. So you might as well just wander <laughs> around. And um, that's the kind of thing that's, that's really interesting is like you can honestly just kind of go, oh yeah, you didn't know there was a, um, a rank and nobility uh, mini game you you didn't play that oh cool like i guess you weren't interested in it you know what i mean it's like the game's very flexible you know you just stumbled upon this mechanic or oh you didn't know there was uh you know battle pets so oh, you just saw that you know kind of thing and like there's there's a few things that you never found up. the crash spaceship oh yeah yeah exactly oh, oh that's in this part of the world and it's like right. you know that's just what you explore and you can also even like neatly divide your history in a way that no one else is it's like oh the last update they put the dread fortress in and they had this event that took place and so everything can just be you can you can kind of um everything's very delineated and you can mm -hmm. kind of just say like oh yes that was the last game event you know kind of between two uh brackets <laughs> like that yeah. this happened so so i actually do that yeah I, in book three, a whole world that's underground sort of opens up. Yeah. But what's really funny about it is the main character and his team get involved and they do this quest underground and then they don't care about it anymore because they're too busy doing a different quest, a different event, right? So now I have this entire underground world that I have not explored yet. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, I mean, it's June 23rd, 2020. I have not come up with any of it. Yeah. I don't know what's in that world <laughs> because my character has not gone to explore it yet. So the majority of the time that I spend is to specifically answer your question is sort of split between developing history for why things are the way they are but only very specifically around the things that the main character is experiencing because yeah. it's a video game and it is designed to make every character, every player feel like they are the main character. Ah, okay. No, that, that's, that's a really good one as well because um, it's every character begins with their humble beginnings and like, the, you know, but they're right. destined for greatness. What do you do? when you have billions of players who are all destined for greatness. And so like there has to be, there has to be this sense in which like if you just drifted off into any one of their given worlds, you can basically just change your point of view to any one of those given characters. And in theory, all of their stories would be epic. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a big motivator for me, yeah. right? In, in understanding that every single character in the book could be the protagonist of their own book. I, I wonder if that's just a good writing principle in general. You know what I mean? And, and a really good bulwark against making, um, against making characters. crappy characters. Yeah. yeah, because like if you assume all of For them sure. are protagonists, their own given adventure, that's, that's wild. So um, now uh, well, let, let's move over to Marcus. Like uh, what, what, are you, what are you finding that you spend the most of your time developing? What gets you stuck? What gets you stuck kind of wanting to dive deeper in your own world? Uh, regardless of what world it is, it seems to always be how all the factions interact with each other. Because like party members in a well-balanced party, the factions in the world have to have a purpose. And it's usually a specialized purpose, uh, in my point of view. Mm. So yeah, you could dive into that. You've got the <laughs> the Chrome Paladins and the Nightmare Ninjas. And um that sort of interaction between them seems to be based off these uh, 
I'm sorry. I, I want to say almost like a supreme elementals, like the, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the sovereign numbers. elementals. Sovereign elementals. So um, kind of seems to be built a little bit off the back of those. So you can kind of establish factions that are built off that, but I bet there are a lot of others in there who serve very specific purposes. Like I can imagine a tinkerer's guild or um, an assassin's guild that may not actually have a sovereign elemental at their core, that may just be kind of like, hey, th this is what we're, this is the project we're undertaking. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. So yeah, like if we start with Prism, yeah, they're all, mm. they're wealthy and sometimes with the holier than thou mentality, but also do a lot yeah. of good in their own right. But at the same time, they're very much upkeeping the status quo as far as the haves and have nots to the point, you know, a lot of people in the world are just like, now we don't want to be part of this kind of money system that you've forced upon us. So we're going to go over here and do our own thing and we're just going to make things better just because. And Prism's like, okay, whatever. A few generations later, oh, you're making stuff better than us because you're not worried about being yeah. paid. <laughs> and uh, no, we're going to come over and annex you before this gets out of hand. So they went over and just basically invaded another continent. Basically, with their jet dragons. With their jet dragons, yes. And that whole other, uh, it's now called the City of Severine, has kind of gone through a golden age of prosperity and innovation and then being annexed. Then they're just basically a factory city for Prism. And then mm. recently they won their independence again. So now they're just it's a basically a pirate city. On the other end, uh, like, quote, Tinkerer's Guild that you mentioned, Hmm. There is a Raridine, which uh, gets its name from uh, Veronicet Raridine, which is this Aladrin scientist yeah. that, you know, has lived an incredibly long time. And her goal is advancement, advancement, advancement. And so the whole yeah. corporation of Raridine, that's their center focus. And basically, they were the main drive to build the Ethergate into the other solar system, but they could not do that without having a partnership with Prism that had the funds. Yeah. So this forged kind of a, an, uh, a pairing between them that neither of them may have really been truly comfortable with. Yeah, mm -hmm. because the leaders of their factions do have history with the uh, initial colonization. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But then there are some like factions that don't really necessarily are tied to a sovereign uh, dare basically is a firm that sells out their private military and mercenaries and they just basically are the most neutral faction because they'll take a contract yeah. they don't care who it's from just as long as they get paid yeah like i'm i'm a huge fan of establishing factions in a game world because that's that's really how people organize and um going in and kind of uh saying you know what are the common interests that may well bind a group of people together it's a really valuable way of growing it and so you find that a lot of your time then is spent building the factions and it seems as if in building out those factions and talking about those interactions you kind of weave together a bit of a history because it's uh you've got this original faction of prism which appears to be the the first kind of place you started with it and then from them you're kind of like well what would they value and what would they think is important who would be a chief antagonist to them and then say well this world kind of this this other faction kind of fits my aesthetic and i want to throw them in and go well how would they interact with these people and over time you've kind of been able to produce a a timeline and a history from that so 
Seth kicks off his thing and he has a concept that is built really around a main character and kind of has, in fact, actually it's in theory built around, you know, several hundred main characters and kind of comes in and says like, okay, I have to kind of backfill the world in order to make this, this character kind of work in their present position. Um, so there's a lot of effort that goes into the lore and the history behind that. You kind of did that in a similar way, but you began with factions and that, that was kind of your, your chief push. You didn't set out to say, Hey, I'm going to write a bunch of lore. You built a faction and then said, well, how would this faction interact with this one? And what history would make sense to fill behind them? I, 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 guess, I guess on that note then, and, and I'll switch it up here because I think this carries really naturally from what you're saying, uh, Marcus, and we'll, we'll go with you and then switch back to Seth at the end. But um, what, what is it then that you think you're trying to get at with your world? What are you trying to achieve with it? How are you, I guess, uh, what is the project's aim, so to speak? All right. I mentioned this before, but I will definitely expand yeah. on it. Go for Basically, it. just the idea that, you know, fantasy has no bounds, you know, kind of like the why not kind of deal and just add it in. Why can't jet powered dragoons exist in the same world as Magitech power suit armies, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that can't exist in the same thing as a whole army of sea people with Godzilla-sized flying crabs to try and invade the surface. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it came down to, like, you know, again, being sick of people saying what's fancy and it's not. And I can remember a conversation I had. It was the debate playing this uh, fantasy MMO. And some people I met there just disdained uh, the inclusion of firearms. They're simple kind of gunpowder flintlock firearms. And they're like, nah, I I don't think firearms should deserve to be in fantasy. And I'm like looking at them. I'm like, really? Really? We can, we can have like magical dragons, uh, but we can't have, you know, technological advancement, you know, go a certain way. Beyond a certain era. Yeah. It's a leap. It's a big leap. Thank you. And it's yes. um, it's a big leap. Like, yeah. why aren't people capitalizing on this? You're stuck, running in place in your fantasy world. You know, you're allowing you know magic to basically be the cure all of all this stuff, but you don't apply it to other things. You know, you don't allow yeah. other things to kind of, you know, creep in uh, as the advances are one thing the other. And I'm like, you know, just throw it all in. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that a jet-powered dragon, uh, the way you're presenting it, it's it seems the more plausible solution, and it's very rare that the jet-powered dragon is the more uh, plausible solution. But in this case, it really fits. You could do a lot with that, and it's it, I think a lot of people's temptation when they consider those knock-on implications is to kind of go the other way. So a lot of folks just make their worlds much harder fantasy, and they make it much like lower magic, and they try to get a lot of mileage out of very little. But I think you just went the other way, and we're just like you know screw it, I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink in, and like I might as well because we've got all kinds of crazy crap. That's rad. I like that. So uh, essentially what you're trying to achieve is a boundless fantasy world, it seems like. Like why, why would you not just enjoy that? And, and the irony is, is that your world is more plausible for its lack of boundaries, Yeah, which I think is an interesting thing. It actually seems more consistent to me. So um, now, Seth, same question. What, what is it that you're trying to achieve with your world? Where are you trying to take your audience with it? 
the very core of what I'm trying to do as a writer is I'm trying to make a world that makes sense for people and doesn't break immersion. So to a certain extent, I'm going in the opposite direction from Marcus, right? Mm -hmm. Marcus is trying to create a world that can include everything. He's Mm -hmm. trying to sort of have that boundless feel to it. I'm trying to do, in a sense, the opposite and have a world that is very consistent internally and never makes my reader say, well, wait, how does that work? Or how does that fit in? And the reason is because the goal is to create a world that is fascinating to people, but is so internally consistent that they feel like they could play the game. So I I had an experience not too long ago where one of my readers wrote to me and said, I would play this character or I would play this class. If I had a class, it would be X, Y, or Z. And that's exactly what I'm aiming for. Yeah. I want people to look at the world and say, I could be the main character. I could be Thorn. I could could live in this world and I could do cool things in this world, but have it be so internally consistent that it doesn't ever break immersion during their reading process, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of a, a more technically explicit reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing or, or what I'm trying to achieve. Right. And the reason I'm trying to achieve that is because that's going to sell better. People are going to like that more. Yeah. 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 And that, and that, that is part of the reality as well of, um, you know, creating, creating content to some extent, you're always trying to balance something you, you want to make that is, like kind of kind of honors your art you want to create mm-hmm. something where you feel like you've 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 done your best but at the same time oftentimes artists are constrained in trying to make something that will sell as well and it seems like mm-hmm. the way that you've pieced your world together and again it's the opposite of what marcus is doing in in a lot of ways because it seems like you went toward a more understated kind of vision and uh, the idea being though that when an audience's plausibility is not strained, they can better see themselves in the character. And this, this to me is interesting because I feel like Marcus's world would have the effect of sweeping you away. Mm -hmm. Whereas your world sets people in a very grounded place in it. And I think both are very valid expressions in it, especially given that you you are writing a book and Marcus is creating an RPG. Um, so what, what I find interesting about this is is the is this variance, right? So Marcus has created a world in which several heroes will arrive and will have many many different directions they could go, and are all in essence kind of the main character of their own story, and we have that this echoes really well with what Seth was talking about, where he needed to create a world where all the characters could plausibly be the main characters and exploring the world on their own. But he is limited to a single point of view with a single kind of character that he's following. So there are some elements to his world that change because of that flavor, even though there's a really similar melody between what you guys are doing. So that's, that's really fascinating to me that you guys have those similar problems, but a lot of it, comes down to um, the purpose, like the actual outlay of it, the format of the story, where uh, Marcus, your world 
involves several people at once and you're kind of catering to a lot of different personalities and different ways to play. Whereas Seth has a limited perspective as he is writing a book. So he only has the one point of view to worry about. And it's led you, Marcus, to build your world with all these deep kind of factional relationships because you kind of needed to create that everything but the kitchen sink feel. And so you needed to make that plausible by creating these different factions that take advantage of different components of the world. Meanwhile, Seth is building a deep history because that's what affects his primary character as, as he kind of explores that world, but has also found that he didn't need to dive super deep into it because of the genre. So it's like, I don't know, it's wild. Sorry, it's, I'm just kind of piecing everything together here. And this is, uh, is really interesting to me how this, how this kind of works and interplays. So that plays a huge role in it. Yeah. Any final thoughts from either of you guys before we bring it to a close? So Marcus, I want to know, is any of your world public? Because it sounds really interesting, and I'm sure that that people would be interested in exploring it. Mm. Um, I mean, I want to, you know, I want to talk to you about this because it sounds like a really fun place to play. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, no, unfortunately, no. I didn't make anything public. I think I tried to make like a wiki, or but before I found World Anvil, I tried to make some kind of mm-hmm. wiki of the thing, and it was just like it was so expansive. Yeah. Because when I throw everything in the end of the kitchen sink in, it's just like so much work to try to now uh, record that out of my GM. So no, I don't have it public yet, but I have considered it because I put so much work into it. Sure, that's great. So if any of you people listening are interested in hearing more about Across the Ether or exploring that world a little bit, definitely let us know. You can connect with us through Facebook or any of our social channels and mm. and let us know because maybe if enough of you say hey i want to i want to see it marcus will put something together all right well um i think that wraps it up really well so thank you guys so much for joining us this has been another episode of the world craft club i'm james seth i'm marcus thank you very much guys see you next time thank you for joining seth and i on the world craft club podcast Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the World Craft Club podcast. Thank you for listening. We should do this again. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting okay. to, sure. to pull it in again and have him jump in. Um, we could, we could I, also source this from different people. Like we have a lot of interviewees that we yeah. can get in together and do there that. So do I do the bring same in, like, thing. I could bring in like Doug from RPG for yeah. you and me and, um, yeah. and John and get them both to talk about it or Dave Schmidt would be game or mm-hmm. Ryan Wilshusen, Susan, sorry, would do it. And uh, so we can, we can do that. Maybe, maybe Elizabeth, yeah. uh, Elizabeth Mock and John would be funny to have on cause they both they know would. each other. Yeah. So that'd, that'd be, be yeah.